Welcome to the Bullpen Session. This is Patrick Lillis. Glad you're here. Glad you're listening. First week fully back from the Southeast Theater Conference, but this uh, episode's conversation is with producer Sally Kate Holmes, one of the conversations I had at Southeast Theater Conference. I just want to say they did a great job, and I'm, I'm, you know, being back a couple weeks just thinking it was, it was wonderful. It was really good to be in the room, to be in a center, a conference, you know, a lot of couple, I don't know how many hundreds of people that were there, feels like, you know, 700 or so, and the people really working together and sharing information and knowledge and creating opportunities for people to take the legitimate next step in building a career. And this conversation was great because uh, Sally Kate came from, you know, theater, she says in the beginning, I think, generalist and discovered producing and created, you know, found her niche and then put herself in a place to learn about how to do it and found a mentor by asking you know, being available, doing the work, being recognized as somebody, you know, they could, they were interested in, but then asking, what do you do? How do you do it? And, you know, and that person being receptive. And I think, and she, you'll hear at the end of the podcast saying she's receptive to that. And I, and I think that's really important to find out. And I also think it's such a good conversation about accessibility, transparency in the industry and, and finding your own path, finding what interests you and in, in finding different models. You know, as we come out of this pandemic, we all found different models for creating work. You know, now I think our job as artists, freelance artists, independent producers, institutions, is to find new models for producing, new models for reaching an audience and, uh, and finding the people who share in the value of the work. And I'm, uh, I think it was really valuable. It was a great conversation, really fun. And I think you're going to enjoy it. I'm excited to share it with you. I also want to say a couple of things. One is the thank you to Matthew Halleck, my very good friend and president of the faculty at Center College, who stepped in and uh, Center two conferences in a row, has supported the farm with their podcast equipment. But uh, Matthew stepped in at the last minute to be the sound engineer, and I am grateful for that, for our live interviews that we had. And also want to say today, just uh, happy birthday, Lisa Arendelle, one of the guests on our pod in the first season and a good friend of mine, and I was thinking about that today. So I hope you have a great day, and you know, part of your day could be listening to this wonderful conversation. And if I didn't say it already, congratulations to the, everyone at Southeast Theater Conference for putting together an amazing event, especially coming out of the last two years, and it was not easy, and, you know, they did it seamlessly. It felt incredibly familiar. It felt felt like we were back. Business, you know, a little not like as usual, but as good as usual, if not better, and uh, that was quite a feat. But one of the great joys was meeting new people and, and getting to talk to Sally Cade, and so right now I'll let you enjoy that conversation, and with that play ball. The theater company was um, myself and four folks who I went to undergrad with. Um, I was a generalist, but mainly a performer, another actor friend of mine, a scenic designer, a lighting designer, and a costume designer all started this theater company kind of in response to some of the work off off Broadway that we had been seeing that felt as though 
design and aesthetic was not really a part like that's part of the thing when you have a limited budget that was kind of put to the side and we understand you have to make hard choices when you're working on a shoestring but we wanted to approach the work with aesthetic and design as a part of that conversation and figure out how to be scrappy and nimble with our budget and still have production values in this off-off-Broadway space. So, um, yeah, our first show was called Exit Carolyn by Jenny Berman Ng, um, directed by Adam Knight, and it was at the Drilling Company Theater on the Upper West Side. Um, Laura Ramaday, our mutual friend, was in it. Um, and it was, I mean, it was like a playground to figure out what we were doing. Right, and know? how you were going to do it. Yeah, and I also learned um, what a pr- what producing is on that Sure. I'm going to ask that because I actually heard the interview where you did everything. You know, yeah. you're not going. Right, I'm not on stage. I'll do everything else. Make it happen. Right. What What did you learn that producing was? Um, well, through a really cute emotional breakdown that I had on opening night, um, <laughs> I learned that the intangible pieces of holding a group together and shepherding this. Even a small production is a behemoth of it's like it's like shepherding energy <laughs> to a goal. That's what it feels like producing in this case was like, you know, you have to be sure that, um, you know, costumes are coming in, load in is happening. We had to get a refrigerator up a flight of stairs, like all of the very tangible things, but also the intangible things. Is the director able to communicate with the playwright? Is the playwright able to communicate with the scenic designer? Are all of these things? moving parts happening Um, and the reason I had this emotional breakdown is because I was like I can't point to anything that I put on that stage and it was a real mental shift um, to this idea that the intangible is okay like the fact that producing is intangible and it still is necessary um, which you know, I'm really interested in spirituality and storytelling. It, it ties into all of those things. Um, but yeah, on that production, I I learned that that I, I I love producing and I love shepherding these balls of energy into production. Yeah, I think that idea of channeling energy and f- nurturing it too to a goal yeah. is a, a great way of thinking about it. I used to have this terrible saying, which was producing means never having to say you're welcome. Um, <laughs> because, you know, you're always solving problems yeah. and people are aware of the problems and they're not always aware of the solution. Right. Um, but I think spiritually it's a much better definition yours is yeah, <laughs> of yeah. channeling energy it's towards the goal. It's also communicating. It's hard when you're in a space with so many people who are so passionate about this thing that we're all trying to create but we all have different modes of communication. So it feels like a producer is sometimes like, all right, I see what you're saying and I see what your end goal is and I see that it's the same as what the production manager wants. The production manager wants the best version of this uh, production, but you're speaking different languages. How can I as the producer step in and help translate and cajole so that we all understand each other? I'm gonna follow up on that because I just had a conversation with Narelle Sissons yesterday, set designer, and I asked, how do you approach when you have a huge idea mm-hmm. and you, you know, it's going to be outside of the budget or it might be bold, like we're going to lose a row of seats, you know, <laughs> how do you have that conversation? And 
it's interesting when you put it in the context as the producer, I think production manager is trying to manage delivery and budget and you know expectations and stuff. When you step in and you were thinking about that, what is that role? How do you do that? How do you step in and navigate between the, here's the creative, here's the financial, how can I get us to a solution? I think it's a lot of listening and it's a lot of asking questions and it's a lot of um, navigating personalities and navigating um, wants and desires and then not being afraid to deliver hard truths. All of those things are, <laughs> those are some wiggly answers for you. They're, it's very <laughs> intangible, but yeah, it feels like those are, the, those are the main things to enter into that. And I think if you're listening and you deliver the hard truth, you still heard what the goal is. Yeah. Because no doesn't mean we're not going to meet the answer. It just means that's not the answer. But it's, it's why collaborating with people you trust feels so important. Um, because I, I don't want to collaborate with someone that doesn't trust me to be honest with them or that thinks that me being honest with them is, a, is an, an affront or a slight or those things. So... So I feel, I feel like building relationships and building trust is so a part of what we do as theater artists. Um, and sometimes that happens very quickly and very intensely. Um, and sometimes that's working with someone for decades and, and having a shared vocabulary. Um, but yeah, that, that trust is really, really important. I want to ask, after that first project, and you thought, oh, I might, after the breakdown and you got the <laughs> affirmation and you thought I might want to do this, what did you do? Did you do another show with that company or did you actively take a step to get into administration or producing? Yeah. Role? So after that, I was like, oh shit, I should learn how to do this. Um, and that meant the only tools in my tool bag at that point were school because I had just gotten out of school because and I didn't have many connections so I didn't feel like I could ask someone to be my mentor so I applied to grad school for arts administration um, I got in at Boston University and I started that program uh, meanwhile the theater company was still running in New York so I we while I was in Boston we did a production at 59 East 59 called Bears by Mark Rigney um, directed by Kristen McCarthy Parker, who is a dear friend and ended up directing Puffs that I was a producer on. Anyway, um, so I was like back and forth between Boston and New York. So it, both things happened. We were still producing and I was like, I should figure out how to. At the time, I thought I wanted to be an artistic director because that was the only path that I had seen. I was like, okay, cool. So you decide you wanna be a, an arts manager slash producer leader type person the the structured path is the nonprofit one you go you get a job in an artistic office you move up you become the associate artistic director you're the artistic director um i had no idea that commercial theater was a thing um and i'm so glad i found it um but yeah so i immediately boston university for grad school i ended up dropping out for about seven years. I, I finished my graduate degree during the pandemic. Congrats. Um, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. It only took me eight years. Um, but luckily I, I fit it in the window. They weren't, they weren't like, no, you're not allowed back. <laughs> when, when you called up, did you say, 
could I bring a Tony I, class? I had I had one a Tony at that point. <laughs> um, no, they were very lovely, and they were like, well, they were like, yeah, we'll take your money. <laughs> That's really what it felt like. I think it's great when you were talking about commuting back and forth. I thought, right, you're you're doing that great thing of like I'm actually doing it, and then I'm going to learn what am I doing, yeah, and how does it apply? Well, that's exactly why I stopped going because I ended up getting an internship at Williamstown Theater Festival over the summer, and then that turned into um, being the producing associate there the following year. So getting a full time job, um, and that and that came out of being invited to do that. They met you that first year and mm -hmm. then they said yeah because i find that is so what is great about summer theaters like williamstown or berkshire the two that i know well and, yeah you know, and yeah they keep that community going yeah i will say i had i had a tremendous amount of privilege to be able to take an unpaid internship and i think that that is not fair <laughs> like i think that that's just not a thing that we should be uh doing anymore and my entire career has been because of that internship or at least you know the right the last set six or seven years um and the fact that it was unpaid and i could do that because i had student loans and you know i, I knew that i had a support system that was going to support me um is tremendous privilege yeah i think we are i i think one of the things that came out of the last two years is the conversation around that and hopefully we are feels like a lot of people are actively trying to change that yeah I know Williamstown is yeah yeah I, I um it's one of the things that are in my head when I think about funding sources and things because we need to do pay equity which also means we need more, more money. money yeah yeah you know and yeah. more support and it either comes from individuals or foundations mm -hmm. and they have to support that too because it is the only way to create opportunity and equity yeah you know and uh, I was just talking to Megan Azer about this a budget is a statement of values in a in a capitalistic society your budget is basically an extension of your mission statement I know one of the things that you have talked about that we have to change is a scarcity model mm. and how do you approach that how do you get how do you change that is that a internal mindset change? Because I do think it's about not only do we need to, we myself need to change that scarcity model inside of what do we have, but also by getting other people to participate in a model mm -hmm. of saying our mm -hmm. values are this, so we need to support that. And how do you actively work towards that? Yeah, I feel like you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's both internal and external work. Um, and it feels like you know the internal work you can control you can you can have a daily practice of trying to shift your consciousness you can, can read books you can it. try to control <laughs> it there's some there's some elements that are left to the universe but um you know there are there are books you can read there's mindfulness surrounding this there's spiritual work to do so that you can shift your perspective to be one of abundance not scarcity now, when it comes to the practical application of that, I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to figure it out myself. Well, good. Then I'll ask you the other question, because I think one of the courageous things of going from a nonprofit model that you originally talked about, and it's true, that's the one I knew, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. and, and to going to the commercial one is the financial support of that is making a different ask. Mm -hmm, very much so. And so 
where did you, how did you develop tools and comfort to work in that world? Because mm -hmm. it is a different thing mm -hmm. than saying, I'm going to sit in this office where I apply for grants exactly. and people want value back, not money back. Right. You know? Right. Um, I think there are, there are a lot of similarities, and I was able to use my vocabulary and from the nonprofit world and translate it to the commercial world. Um, so, for instance, when I am talking about fundraising, I say, you know, you donate to a nonprofit and you are going to have a tremendous, um, wonderful feeling of contributing values. You can write it off your taxes. Like all of these things are great. The same thing is true if you support a commercial project that you love passionately. If you lose every penny, it's a tax loss. And you know that you have supported an artist. You have been a part of something bigger than you. Um, and, and the thing about the commercial world is if it is financially successful, then you also get a financial upside. Um, so I actually kind of reappropriated the language from the nonprofit world into the commercial world. And then to be quite frank, I had a wonderful mentor in Tom Curtihy who I was able to watch do his work with such values and such integrity. Fundraising is not easy and it does take trust and to be able to watch someone like Tom go out and pound the pavement to find investors was like watching a masterclass on how to do it. And that lines back to also picking shows and material that resonate with you mm -hmm. so that when you're having those conversations, you're doing it with integrity. You have to. Yeah. yeah. I, I, any conversation I have with an investor starts with, this is probably not a good investment. Like there has to be honesty there. 20% of Broadway shows recoup their investment. That is a very small number. It's the same as um, venture capital, actually, I've, I learned recently. But yeah, I, and if I were to come at someone and be like, this one is a surefire bet, red flags all around. Like, no, absolutely not. Yeah, that's, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as a surefire bet. And, all right, so from Williamstown, how did you meet, how did you meet, did you meet Tom or how did you meet Tom? But I really, what was the next step? I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was an intern and then I was the producing associate. And that, that summer that I was a producing associate happened to be the summer when The Visit, um, Kendra Nebb and McNally with Cheetah Rivera in it, was doing its out-of-town tryout at Williamstown. Um, so... I had the staff position. My office was, I shared an office with Steve Kaus, who was the producer that summer. Um, and it was kind of like in the middle of everything. And Tom was working on his continuing legal education because he's a lawyer and he couldn't work the copy machine. So I, and I saw that he was struggling with a copy machine because my office had glass. <laughs> so I came out and I was like, can I help you with a copy? Like, can, so we bonded over the copy machine. And uh, when my contract ended at Williamstown, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I could go back to Boston and finish my degree, but I want to be in New York. And I, I, I was just talking to everybody, and I asked Tom to go to coffee. Um, and we went to coffee, and it was a kind of serendipitous time. He had It's Only a Play opening on Broadway and had, I mean, just like he was very busy. Um, and I was available. <laughs> so I was like... I. I will say I bought him coffee, which I feel was a bold and unexpected move that made that got his attention, because um, I'm like a 20-something-year-old, and he's a very established producer and lawyer. Um, 
and he was like, do you want to come help out? And I said, absolutely. Um, and then that's, that's kind of how that relationship started. I'm going to ask that very specific. He, he asked, you went to coffee to sit for our advice or to Just talk about what you're doing to, next? To, to get to know what, what he did. I genuinely saw what he was doing on the visit in, at Williamstown. And I was like, I think I was seeing the most exciting parts or the most artistically fulfilling parts when a producer is out of town with a show and it's kind of a, a bubble of safety before the real scary fundraising happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting. And then, and then you went and you worked for him and he mentored. When did you, I don't know why I'm asking, taking this whole career direct trajectory thing, but it's interesting to me because I think the, I think the transition to starting to say, I'm gonna sit down, I'm gonna ask for money, I'm gonna be a partner, I'm gonna deliver on an industry where one in five succeed. Mm -hmm. And, but it is still all an artistic investment, mm -hmm. which I'm hearing. And where does the first, I'm on my own, I'm my own independent, I'm part of the producing team, mm -hmm. but as not, not associated with anybody but me. Yeah, so. Um, and where does the trust come from for others? Uh-huh. Luckily, because I was working with an established producer, I was able to kind of get my sea legs, as it were, um, on shows that he was the lead producer on. So I was able to be a co-producer and develop some relationships with investors while I had mentorship. Um, and my first show on Broadway was Anastasia. And honestly, that was not too hard of a raise. Like it, it felt like it was gonna be a commercial success. People love the story. Um, so yeah, I did that. And then, you know, once you've started, then there's some momentum that happened. Um, and then when I decided to go out on my own in January of 2020, what a time to go out on your own as a producer of theater. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, all of the relationships with my investors, they, they stay like I, I have, I have wonderful investors who, you know, I trust and they trust me. Um, but yeah, establishing my own vision as a producer, I'm figuring that out. I have my first really big, um, enhancement deal coming up in the next year. And that feels exciting and scary. Um, more exciting, <laughs> but because uh, I'm passionate about the work and I know that I can go to an investor and say, this is why I love it. And this is why I think you'll love it. And you should come on this journey with me. I think that's great. And uh, in an enhancement, you're bringing money to another theater, a nonprofit's my guess. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you can talk about the project. Can you? Or, or I can talk about the project. I can't talk about what theater it's going to yet. Um, but the money, the money, uh, how does that work if somebody gives enhancement money? Yeah. What is their commitment or relationship to the future of that show? That's a great question. So it can work a lot of different ways. Um, but an enhancement agreement with a nonprofit theater is usually for a developmental. It's usually while the play is trying to get on its feet, while it's trying to learn what it is. It's usually the first time that it's really had a full set, full costumes. So before you make the commitment to take it off Broadway, take it to Broadway, you want to try it somewhere. So that's what these enhancement deals are, are about. Um, so in partnership with a regional theater, regional nonprofit theater, 
a commercial producer will come in and say, what is your budget usually for this slot? Here is the, here is the play or musical that we need to develop. How much more is it going to cost to do this than what you would usually do? And then it is the commercial producer's job to fill that gap with investors or with, you know, and they're called front money investors usually um, because it is high risk, right? Like these investors have never seen the show. They have read it on the script or on on the page, but they don't know what it's going to be. So because of that high risk, they get better terms moving forward. So if the show does end up off-Broadway or on-Broadway, they will have better financial terms. And that, and that initial investment counts. That, that money is their investment. They put it in already. They can roll it. They can roll it over, but then they are also afforded an opportunity to increase their investment based on their... It's very funny. I knew what enhancement money was. I thought you put that very clearly up, but I never actually knew how it worked for the investor. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's usually a one-for-one deal. So for every dollar that the producer makes, the investor will also make a dollar. It's a, it's a good deal, but yeah. it's also like... It is high risk. Not many. Who? There are so many shows that have enhancement deals that don't get to Broadway. There are 41 Broadway theaters. There are a gazillion shows. <laughs> like, it's it's tricky. It's an approximation, but yeah. I agree. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and before the you know before the pandemic, there were 41 full theaters. Yeah. You know. Right. I mean, on a podcast about theaters, I don't really put the you know constantly talking about theaters dying, theaters dying. Mm. Like, I don't know about that. Theater seems to be full and yeah. alive, and we're all doing it, and we're yeah. at this incredible conference, exactly. and it seems fine. I know? also think there might be a trend towards analog in the coming years. I personally have taken Instagram off of my phone. Well, I re-downloaded it because I'm at this conference. But <laughs> <laughs> listen, full full disclosure. But as soon as this conference is over, I'm re-deleting it. And I know a lot of my friends have been feeling an impulse to pull away and kind of um, make the world a little bit smaller. I love what social media has done for us to connect us, but also that is, it's hard to be inundated with so many images that are like outside of our immediate village, you know? Yeah, no, I think that's actually one of the things I'm trying to think. We have a war in Ukraine right now, so my next statement might sound not so informed, but I keep wanting to go like, yes, there's a tragedy 3,000 miles away, does that impact me? Yeah, yeah. Did, did that ruin my day? Yeah. I'm not sure I should let it. And it's hard because we need to be aware, but we also have to look inside. Like, we, we also have to be with ourselves and know what our limits are and know when to stop looking. Yeah. And the algorithms just want us to keep looking. One of the things, speaking of going off of social, one of the things I was interested in is experiential yeah. autonomy that yeah. you talk about and can you talk about that and, yeah and the importance of it um, this kind of goes into i think people's um desire to authentically connect away from screens and i think that's going to continue to be a trend and we've seen that like experiential marketing is such a buzzy word right now meaning that any marketing collateral or marketing language needs to fit into the consumer's uh content basically it doesn't need to feel like marketing it shouldn't feel like we're marketing something it should feel organic and authentic the extension of that is the experiential economy so the idea that 
we all want to have authentic experiences out in the world. We all want to experience great storytelling, whether we're, you know, buying a coffee at Starbucks. What is that experience like? Whether we are sitting in a Broadway theater, like what is the what is the experience from getting your ticket at the box office? No, even what is your experience from parking your car or getting off the train to the curtain call and exiting the theater? Like that is what I mean when I say the experiential economy. There are so many opportunities here to have a more holistic approach to how we produce. I'm also trying to leverage, like there's not much money in theater. <laughs> and I am honestly excited about the applications that I as a theater practitioner have and could take to other industries. I think that's a really exciting proposition. I, I do too. And I actually, I heard you're, are you doing something similar with that with Furman? Yeah. So I'm working with Furman University. I just taught, a, I called it an advanced seminar in creative leadership. But yeah, it was about creative leadership. It was about showing up authentically. It's about um, how artists are leaders and how those skills are wildly transferable to any anything. The same way that a producer facilitates conversation or facilitates communication, artists can do that in any setting. Um, so yeah, that's what the work at Furman was. And I'm trying to um, go other places with that because I think it's really valuable but it's hard to, there's no very specific like learning outcome other than learning, expanding your brain, I guess. But. I also think learning your value is you know, yes. incredibly important. Yeah. And I think the pandemic, you know, one thing for two years, an industry shut down almost, I mean, it came back yeah. more than two years, but, it, but those people had to go out and work in different ways. Mm -hmm. We all, theater people and artists all adapted to figure out new ways exactly. to create and present yeah. work. But also, nothing wrong with saying, oh, what I love about this work is this. How can I bring this to another, yeah. another opportunity? I've been thinking a lot about how when I was growing up and theater was my passion and my creative outlet and, all, and my hobby and all of these things, that when it becomes your job, it's hard to... to um, kind of reconcile those two things because jobs often burn you out just because it's the grind, you need that money to live, like you have to pay your rent. And when that is parallel with the thing that makes you happiest in the world, it's tricky. So I've been really exploring what that relationship is and if there's actually other ways for me to pay my rent and that allow me to be an artist and a creative just for play and for creativity's sake. Um, I, I'm, I'm trying to create this like life of uh, income streams from a lot of different places so that I don't have to depend on one thing. Um, and it allows me flexibility to really spend time with my art and the thing that I love. Right, and I, I love that because I think it's good to think about like how do I bring my passions, how do I bring my skills to other things? Because we all know, especially the early career artist, you know, is going to be one of the designers. Last night talked about I was serving coffee and I was working this second job, and mm -hmm. you know, and I thought everybody's doing multiple jobs. Like, why don't we find multiple revenue streams? Why don't we think about? Well, I'm actually enjoy this. And when you said the thing about, and when you say enjoying your art and the passion of it, doesn't mean you're doing it for free. Right. You right. Know, right. You're still but 
but you're not solely reliant where you where it becomes desperate grinding and desperate yeah. des de desperation yeah yeah, yeah. Um, which I think is lovely and my question was <laughs> what draws you to a show but I feel like if I don't ask like what draws you to how did you get introduced to Hades Town anybody who's listening will be like get to talk to Hades Town <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm 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 always happy to talk about Hades Town um, for th so so broadly what draws me to a show is um, I feel like entertaining has been a word that's like kind of taboo in high-minded circles, but like, screw that. I want a piece of art that is inherently and overtly entertaining. I don't want to sit through something boring. I don't want my audiences to sit through. I don't want to sell spinach to a two-year-old. I want an entertaining piece of theater. That's number one. Number two is it has to have some social justice or some type of subverting um, a popular narrative that sits just under the entertainment value. And Hadestown checks that box. Um, I believe that my Southern family should be able to go see a show and come out questioning their beliefs, but like in a way that that they don't feel that they've been made the the butt of a joke or the way that or so, insulted or insulted yeah so except it, it must invite an audience to lean in and win trust and then cause questions so that's the broad answer Hades Town specifically I <laughs> an ex of mine introduced me to the concept album in 2008 and then it became like listen, I'm into musical theater, but I'm into cool musical theater. And I would like share the Hades Town album. Um, and uh, that said, I'm into just all musical theater. So I don't know who I was kidding at that point. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so that happened in 2008. I became obsessed with a concept album and Anais Mitchell in general. Fast forward to 2016. 17? I don't know. Um, and Tom was having a meeting with the two other producers who had already attached themselves to Hadestown. And I was like, Tom, we, you, you must. Like, this is very important to me personally. You must get involved in this. I, he got involved of his own volition, but I was a little bird on his shoulder being like, this is the coolest show that's ever existed. Um, and then he offered me a co-producing slot. Um, and of course, I've been obsessed forever. So I said, absolutely. And it checks all of my boxes. Yeah. Inherently entertaining and causes an audience to think. I love that. Also, were you not tracking age or journey, but when you got that concept album, were you, were you in a place or a role to think, oh, someday I can produce this show? Definitely not. Right. So just having that <laughs> awareness and not. holding on to it, I think yeah. is, I, one of the reasons I wanted to point it out is just because I remember, you know, I was introduced to plays early before other people knew about mm -hmm. them, and you're like, that's a good play, mm -hmm. and you're not wrong, you know, right. and, right. and, uh, and before that play opened on Broadway, but it, when you were talking in Tom's ear, I was at Center College, and a student it must have heard the album, because it hadn't been produced yet, yeah. and they're like, tell our college we have to do this next year. Yep. I'm like, 
interesting workshop to go to Broadway. I don't think you're going to get to do it next year, but, you have, but I like but, that you're yeah, interested. Hang on for a few years. The yeah. licensing will come around at some point. It'll be there. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, that's great. Yeah. And I like that you got to stay and be part of that and put it together. Mm. The goal of the podcast is to demystify the process. And I think you would actually, I think I wrote that down because I heard you talk about transparency mm-hmm. and, and that and and is it how do you how do how do we do that mm-hmm. how do you talk about transparency with people and and because i know you talked about how you approach investors and that's one thing but how do we just do it overall so that we all know what's happening and how it's happening and yeah and and i think also it goes to your idea of different revenue streams of like also having a reality of what you can expect from this industry yeah um, I think this goes back to what we were talking about, scarcity and abundance. I think that there is such a fear of like, you know, there are only 41 Broadway theaters and there can't be too many producers or we'll have too much. And, you know, like when in reality, no, a rising tide floats all boats. And the more voices and the more diverse voices that we have in a space, in an industry, in a profession, the better. And But I think that that kind of idea of competition and getting ahead and and being the Tony Award winner, I think that has gotten in the way of transparency. So that's that's one element of it. The other element is that people are busy. You know what I mean? Like producers are busy people. So I feel like there's not a real emphasis on education. Um, There is some great work being done by a company called The Business of Broadway that my friend, Heather Shields. Did you do an interview with Heather Shields? I have not. Well, she's wonderful. Uh, <laughs> Heather Shields, Rachel Sussman. Um, oh, and there are a couple of other people involved that I'm blanking on. But um, the Business of Broadway is a really great organization. Uh, and then I think that I'm personally like on TikTok making videos about commercial theater, just trying to lift this veil of opacity that exists. And I think it's people holding on to privilege, too, like not acknowledging that I got to where I am because of privilege. And a way that I can diffuse that is to bring other people up with me and and make sure people know what it means to produce a show, know what it means to, you know, have several revenue streams and and where my money actually comes from and you know, like I have a job with a podcast company called Next Chapter Podcasts, and that is what pays my salary right now. In addition to several investments, in addition to I have an Airbnb property that I manage, um, and I also do consulting. So all of these things together are making like are my hustle. Um, <laughs> and, and you yeah. teach an advanced class. At yeah, university. yeah, and I like that's that's exactly it. I'm also trying to seed future revenue potential by creating curriculum and another thing you said though is the 41 theaters we both you know talked about that but there's also if there are all these other producers there's author as you said the podcast there's other ways to produce and Mm -hmm. there's other you know we you know we sort of think the commercial model of broadway but like there there are other models yes and and we gotta find them yeah but i do think we have to find them i think those models when we talk about breaking privilege Mm -hmm. and becoming more equitable but it's also there's also other ways ways to create work, other ways to reach different audiences, mm-hmm. other ways to you know just to put the work up because certain projects, certain projects don't belong in a ten block neighborhood in New York. Mm-hmm. Certain yeah. projects 
belong somewhere else. Yeah, letting the stories speak for themselves, I think, is an important. And as a producer, that's something that I, I think about a lot. Does, does this show beg to be on Broadway? Does this show beg to be off Broadway? Does it, does it beg to be in a tent by the river? Like, that's, that's something that's important to, to articulate, I think. Yeah, it's nice. I was going to ask, what do you carry in the room with you mm. now that maybe you didn't when you were doing that first play? <laughs> oh, man. Wow. A lot, I'm which, sure. which room are we talking about? Well, I like to exit open, actually. I like to yeah. leave it open because, you know, it could yeah. be it could be that if that investor room could be the advanced classroom. But my other thought is it can be that first day in a workshop studio yeah. with your artist. Yeah. I think... Um, I think... I carry a more expanded view of what I do. Um, I'm not just putting on shows. I'm not just raising money. I'm not just making theater. I'm authentically showing up as myself in every space that I enter. And that is what I'm trying. <laughs> and and sometimes, sometimes succeeding and sometimes failing um, to carry into space with me. That question made me think a lot about audition rooms that I've, I've been really puzzled by them of late because I hate the power dynamic of people behind a table and one individual actor coming in. And I'm like, that is something that I want to shift, just saying that out loud, manifesting it. <laughs> it's gonna be recorded. Yeah. We've got yeah. it. You have it. We are, we are gonna yeah. manifest it. I actually agree. I think there's such, how, how we interview for jobs audition is one thing which is, seems silly because we're not actually we're not learning if that person's we're not I spend a lot of time as a director talking to the person who comes into the room almost more than at mm -hmm. working with them mm -hmm. because you have a limited amount of time but you want to find out is this the right person mm -hmm. is this the right project and that project you know you worked on Hadestown how long from initial not 2008 but initial professional contact with it to opening night. How much time is that? Oh, years. Yeah, and you're working, you gotta know like, oh, this is the right person. You don't right. get it from 16 bars? No. You know, like, no. and so, I mean, that's a small, tiny diminishment of what you're saying, but yeah. that idea is you do wanna change that. Yeah. I also think the power dynamic in the room is, is it's a great point because yeah. I think you wanna also make it sure that we're all going to be working together because we're actually building a piece of art. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not filling a slot. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. and I think thinking that way is great. Very, when you went to auditions, I thought you were going to say the things that prevent you from bringing in your authentic mm. self, and I'm wondering what stops you. That, uh, what, I think that through line is actually, yeah, I think that that power dynamic stops me. Like, like showing up in a space that has a very prescribed, um, you know, the powerful people sit at the table and the less powerful people sit behind the powerful people. That, that um, kind of uh, grasping for control of a situation is something that keeps me from authentically showing up as myself. Um, so in rooms that I hope to lead, I wanna figure out a way to, to make sure that's not the case and to make sure that whether you're an assistant copy editor at an ad agency, or you are the lead producer, everybody's thoughts matter. Everybody is very connected to the piece. Um, and I think making a, making a space where everybody feels like they can show up authentically is important. Yeah, and that, they're, and that they, yeah, not only 
can share their opinion, but they can be comfortable to have an opinion. Yeah, exactly, you know? exactly. Uh, and um, thinking about getting into this industry and, and what advice do you have? And it doesn't have to be to get into this industry. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I think that this industry is wonderful. I think the advice that I always come back to is there is no one path. There is no one path. Like, we're just all humaning out here. We're just all being humans, bouncing around other humans. And if you trust and, and really work on that mindset of abundance, this sounds so woo-woo. And I, I am actually, a, like, I am a commercial producer, and I raise a lot of money, and I believe in entertainment. But I think that paired with an abundant mindset and acknowledging that you're not comparing yourself to anyone else and that every step that's right for you might not be right for somebody else and saying yes to things you're excited about and no to things you're not excited about is the way to move through the industry. And do you know what that takes? Knowing yourself and knowing what you want and what you believe in. That's great and clear. And I also think it brings along with it, there's something about, there's no path, there's different ways of getting there, but also knowing not only what you want, but it, you bring things to it. Yeah, you, know, you, you have value. You yeah. have value. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are certain, there might be a certain way to bring a skill to something that you never thought about. Yeah. And all of a sudden, like, oh, right, I'm loving that. Yeah, a skill or a perspective. Like, every single human has a unique perspective, and that is amazing and worth being, contrib like, it's worth contributing that perspective. So, yeah. Great. Yeah when we talk about privilege, how do we break into that industry and create the opportunity for the person who didn't go to like one of the three elite programs, yep. you know? And, yeah. and how do we genuinely, authentically make those pathways available? That is actually the mission of the farm, to create connection and pathways for those without the pedigree of success. Yeah. Because, and, and it was interesting to be at the Southeast Theater Conference and have everybody talk about how to make the next step and how to make the next step, and I went, Right, but that next step happened from like Williamstown, this network, mm -hmm. which you know is great. Mm -hmm. But how do we do the next? Yeah. How do we do it now that we yep. have an awareness? Yep. I think it takes people in power making time and space and wanting to do it. Um, Jim Lebrecht last night at the keynote was talking about accessibility and talking about how if an organization wants to become more accessible, they will. If people in power want to clear pathways, they will. They will answer the email from the random kid that emails them and go to coffee. They will, you know, uh, work towards not just looking at resumes from, I don't know, the, the Ivy League big, big fancy places. They will take a risk on somebody that might be great. And it's not even a risk. It's just a... Um, they will shift their perspective. Yeah, it's not a risk, it's a willingness. Yeah, it's a want and a willingness and a desire to clear a pathway. Um, but I do think it has to come from the people in power. Because the people who are inching the way, their way up, th they're, they're trying. It. Yeah, they're doing the work. Um, so yeah, I think I, I, I will say this on this podcast. I've said it before. If somebody emails me, it might take me a long time, but I will respond to you. That's that's my commitment. Um, and I will get on a Zoom or go to a coffee. Like, that feels very important and uh, a thing that, like, is a value.
Oh, that was great. It was a great, um, it was a great conversation. I also really just appreciate at the end her willingness to be accessible. And it was true. She modeled it's something I said about Norell and the sound design, uh, the design panel. When I, I talked about that in the last interview, that somebody, you know, had a question. And one of the designers on the panel said, oh, come up and talk to me afterwards. And I'll, you know, I'll give you my information. And as Sally Kate said at the end of that, our conversation, you know, well, if you have a question, check in. And, you know, not saying how quickly she'll be able to respond, but that she's open and available and, and modeled that. You know, we had an audience member for our conversation at the podcast and, you know, they didn't want to ask their question on air, but they wanted to do it afterwards. And she stayed and talked to them one-on-one. And it was, it was just really it was great. That, that uh, I think if we're going to change models and we're going to find transparency, it's the thing that, she, that Sally Kate said, which is, you know, we have to be accessible and we have to be willing. And that also the thing our next guest uh, next episode is Jim Lebrecht, sound designer, disabilities advocate, and Oscar-nominated documentary film producer and co-director. Uh, and he said, "Is you know we're going to be more accessible when if organizations want to be more access- accessible, and it's same with individuals. And that is how we're going to get the, you know, we're going to create the change and create the pathways for for people who may not have had the pathways before. Is so we're going to you know." open ourselves up as much as the doors to others and uh, and remain open. And also the other thing about revenue streams that I like that she talks about is I think this time taught us that there's, you know, these skills are transferable. You know, maybe we're not doing theater the way we've always done it. Some people are, you know, some are in the proscenium and the 300-seat theater and whatever, and some are making audio dramas and some are making virtual events and, and creating different things. And as we consider to create different models we got to find different models to present that produce that and sort of focused on the generating revenue of that but i think we will all find it so thank you for the conversation sally kate thank you everyone for listening i also want to say that i am back this week in a rehearsal room in person um directing a solo show by adina taubman called the road back and it's uh, it's on mental health and it's her very specific journey back to health and Dean and I worked together on her show, A Line in the Sand, about Columbine uh, for years. And she became an incredible gun control advocate through that work on that show. And, and I really respect the, the nuanced, detailed work of the mental health journey. And I think also an important show for us coming out of this pandemic. You know, it's one thing to say like, oh, we're all productive and coming out of the conference and we got to find ways to find models for that work. But also we have to recognize we've been through a lot. We've been through some trauma and isolation and And I'm just really glad to be in the room working on a play, working creatively, working with designers, talking about the three-dimensional storytelling, but also love the story that Adina is telling. And I think it is vulnerable and honest and inspires. While I'm listening to it, I identify with certain aspects of it and I find it useful. And so it's entertaining. So I hope you'll come. Uh, But also I think it's the right show to be doing as we step out of here, out of into the next phase of life after this craziness of the two years. Um, So I hope you'll check it out, The Road Back. And when do we open? We open April 21. But yeah, that's that's it. And I think before I sign off, I just wanted to, you know, again, grateful to be back at SCTC. It was so, so good to see everybody, see old friends and make new friends, but also just see everybody working towards taking the next step and also having conversations about what have we learned? What have we learned and how are we going to continue to apply it? And 
and I think that we are going to continue to apply it and that we're going to be better for it. And we're going to make good art and hopefully a healthier, healthier process and be healthier ourselves as we step forward in the next phase. So with that, we're out. Thank you.